everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why to you, you should be thinking theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodge, and joined by our resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? Pretty good. It's, you know, the weather has warmed up around here. Yeah, it uh, decided to wait just long enough to ruin our schedule we shouldn't have run our mouths on the last episode no we're done being sick we'll be back in two weeks no and and then weather comes again you know i was i i'm in i don't know if i've mentioned this i'm in texas right now no longer in oklahoma but i was supposed to be twice during the month of february speaking in oklahoma and both times it got oh yeah iced or snowed out uh so, but now it's like 80 degrees, at least here in East Texas today, upper seventies. Yeah. It's, so, it's about the same over here. Quite nice. Yeah. Uh, which, which is good, which is perfect good. golfing weather. Perfect. You disc golf. So perfect disc golfing weather though. I did play Saturday with ice and stuff still on the ground. Uh, had a great round by the way. Um, but also slipped on the ice and hurt my knee really bad. Um, <laughs> this weekend's perfect, but I will be indoors at a at a lectureship type event. So I will be outdoors <laughs> on the golf course this weekend. All right, I, well, be thinking of be. me. <laughs> be thinking of me while you're out there, and uh, be thinking of our episode stuff. I know, I know you've got episode stuff in the works. That extra week gave us uh, opportunity to talk about uh, some some things. You know, we've been we've been saying. We're not 100% sure where we're going next. We've got ideas, but those ideas for us generally are multiple episode ideas. So we have to commit <laughs> to, to whatever we want to do here. Uh, and we've been given the opportunity to kind of buffer uh, between our last uh, talking about gospel composition, interpretation, contradictions in the resurrection narratives as kind of a, an application example of all that. Uh, and before we head into our next subject, which uh, that'll that'll pop up later uh, here a couple times of, of what we're go- doing next. Uh, but today we want to talk about theology on the world stage with everything that's going on. You know, just six months ago, uh, there was the pulling out of the Middle East and all that. Uh, and then uh, this past, uh, it's been a week and a half now. Is that right? That's, I think so. A uh, week and a half since Russia uh, invaded Ukraine and everything that's going on there and just gave us an opportunity to talk about theology in a much grander scale uh, on the, the world stage and how Christians and Christianity fits into that, that bigger picture. So uh, we do want to encourage you uh, to comment and let us know what you think about this episode and the things that we discuss in this episode, as well as giving us, uh, giving us ideas for future episodes. We've already had a few more come in, uh, and we may very well talk about those things, though a little spaced out, and maybe we'll talk about that here in a moment too. Uh, but you can send all those to strongchurchministries at gmail.com, or you can get either of us on Facebook, just Spencer on Twitter, and anywhere else that messages get posted for followers and stuff or whatever. That's where he is. <laughs> I'm only on Facebook because I am officially I'm, 
an old man. I guess. I'm everywhere trying to hold on to the little bit of youth I have left. <laughs> what are, are, is there two years difference between us? Uh, 28. I'm, tw- I'm 26. Oh my goodness, dude. You're so young. <laughs> Tell that to my back that I <laughs> threw out deadlifting the other day. And so my back is fine, but my knee's bad. So, you know, my knees are bad, pretty bad too. Well, <laughs> all right, maybe, but you know what? The 30 year old is calling you the theologian in training every other week or D- every three weeks, depending on the weather. So you've got that going for you. Well, when it comes down to it, I'm j- don't play college sports. It just ruins your body. I mean, I, I've got the body of a 40-year-old. Okay, I promise you that I will not play college sports now. So, <laughs> I'm just I'm just warning you think about it. <laughs> I will. I I'm still waiting to be drafted by NBA, NFL. Uh it's not happening. So, I might just join the disc golf. Perfect. A- anyway, we're getting off into Let's talk about theology on the world stage uh, and not our uh, bodies falling apart here on this. Uh, we want to start by defining some terms here of uh, of how the world works. I mean, we're going to look at two terms here. There are others that we could look at, but uh, de- define these terms for us, Spencer, imperialism and nationalism about uh, the world stage and how, how countries tend to kind of function and, and play out, and then we'll then we'll bring Christianity into the mix here. Yeah, so when when we, you start talking about uh, countries interacting with one another, uh, worldwide, world stage kinds of events, like Russia invading Ukraine, uh, uh, war, um, economic connections, whatever it, it, it may be, uh, the, those two terms, imperialism and nationalism, seem to come up a lot, at least in when I see people talking about the subject. Particularly, most of what I see is is Christians, religious people, uh, talking about these events going on on the world stage. And you see these terms crop up. And at least what I notice a lot of the times is when people are debating over these things, uh, they aren't defining the terms in the same way. So sometimes you've got two people fighting over nationalism or imperialism, and they're saying the same things. They're just defining the word differently. Yeah. And so I think it's important when we start to think about how Christianity, how theology connects to the world stage, to worldwide events, that we begin by defining these terms and having a a kind of working definition of, okay, this is what these terms mean, or these are the ways that we're going to be using these terms. So we're kind of all on the same page, all talking about the the same things. And that's an important thing to do, no matter what you're talking about, is go back and define your terms. In in grad school, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, is kind of a, a running joke uh, that I've become known for is asking the question, well, what does that mean? What do you mean by this word? Let's define the terms. I ask that all the time because uh, a professor or something will, will ask, well, what do you think about this? And my first response is, well, let's define our terms. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. It, it's kind of hard to get anywhere if we're not 
using the words in the same way. So uh, the first is imperialism. Uh, I've, I've seen that crop up particularly over the last week, week and a half, as uh, conversations uh, began to happen about Russia, about Ukraine, as it kind of became obvious what was probably going to happen. And then when it finally did happen, that this term has been thrown around. And uh, the I, I've taken these definitions f- straight from Merriam-Webster's dictionary. So these are just the dictionary definition of these terms is what I would like to start with and, and go with. So Merriam-Webster defines imperialism as the policy, practice, or advocacy of extending the power and dominion of a nation, especially by direct territorial acquisitions or by gaining indirect control over the political or economic life of other areas. Broadly, it means the extension or imposition of power, authority, or influence. So in other words, uh, imperialism is a nation, a country. I mean, you could probably even use it for any group of people who wants to expand their influence, their power, their way of life, their policies, their interests, anything like that uh, throughout the world, over other people, groups, other nations, um, things like that. And as we're going to talk about in a moment, I think from a biblical perspective, that leads to a lot of problems in thinking about any group just wanting to expand and have control and power and influence as wide um, as it could possibly be. And particularly, at least as Merriam-Webster defined it, imperialism, a lot of the times this has to do with territorial acquisition. So it's acquiring or taking over a territory, another nation, something like that gaining some kind of of control, forcing people to do something because of um, some control you have maybe over some resource or even going back to acquiring them or taking things away from them, whatever it may be, kind of forcing them uh, to do whatever you want to do and expanding that as wide as it it can be. Uh, the, The next term is nationalism which not just recently, but I would say over the the past, particularly over the past few years, five, um, ten years, this has been a rising uh, kind of buzzword within Christian circles. Probably rightly so. You've had a lot of people point out some of the problems of Christian nationalism, some of the ways that nationalism has entered into the church in a negative way. And then you've had people fighting back against that and saying that that it's a good thing or at least not always a bad thing. And again, at least in my experience, when I see people debating over how nationalistic can a Christian be, which happens a lot, a lot of the times they're defining the term very, very differently on sure. what it means to be nationalistic, what nationalism even means. So uh, we're just going to solve this entire debate right now. Not really. perfect. Uh, oh. But this is how Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines nationalism. Nationalism is loyalty and devotion to a nation. Now, if you stop there, there's, at least within reason, 
right? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having a certain level of loyalty or devotion to your nation. Right. Wanting to see good things happen in whatever nation you live in. Um, wanting to to see uh, your nation thrive. I mean, it's the same thing as we think about other areas, right? You own or you work in a business, right? You have some. You probably have some kind of loyalty or devotion to that business. You want to see good things happen to it. You want to see it thrive. The church that you go to, there you probably have some kind of loyalty, devotion. You want to see good things happen for that. Uh, your family, you have a loyalty and devotion to your family as well. Uh, within reason, there's nothing wrong with that. But this is where the problem comes in. Uh, uh, Merriam-Webster's definition continues. It says that nationalism is especially a sense of national consciousness exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and its interests as opposed to those of other nations or supranational groups. That's where you start getting the problems of nationalism. Uh, that's yeah, where people, yeah. again, within the last five, ten years, have started to point out how that has impacted Christians and impacted the church. And what that part of the definition is saying is that nationalism, at least is the way we see it played out now, especially shows where you're promoting your nation and your nation's interests, culture, uh, governmental system, whatever it may be, as being superior and better than every other nation, every other culture, that's where you start getting into some problems, right? So think about some of these other areas, the business that you work in, right? You want to see it thrive, but there would lead to some problems when you say, well, I want to see it thrive at the expense of everybody else. Yeah. Uh, your church. I want to see good things happen to my church, but not at the expense of other churches. I, I don't think my church is any better than your church or this church or that church. I don't want to see mine succeed uh, by yours diminishing. I, I take. I have loyalty or devotion to my family. I want to see good things happen to my family. But it's problematic when I start thinking that my family's better for whatever reason than your family. Um, right. And so that's where nationalism becomes a problem. When we want to to promote our nation, our culture, our interests above all others. So I've heard people say this, you know, it's a perfectly fine thing to say something like, God bless America. But you can't say that – you have to be just as willing to say that as you want to say God bless Russia or God bless uh, whatever other country because it's not that we want God to bless us and not others. It's we want God to bless every nation, every yeah. group of people equally. Um, and th our – nation, our interests aren't greater than anybody else's, most importantly, not greater than the kingdom of God. And that's where you, particularly in Christian circles, yes. get some problems of uh, we elevate our culture and interests, sometimes not just above other cultures, other nations' interests, but above 
the culture of the kingdom of God and the interests of the kingdom of God, which ought to be at the very top. You're already, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, we should just keep rolling here because you're already kind of introducing into this, uh, taking these these two definitions, uh, imperialism and nationalism now, and talking about them generally, uh, we want to focus in on uh, America versus other nations being Americans ourselves, you listening to this, likely also American. Um, so we, th- this is our particular societal cultural way of of thinking uh, and then as spencer has already alluded to there is uh, there are conflicts that arise between uh, the american side of things and the christian side of things about how we should function and view all this together so uh, spencer let's just jump right into that let's uh let's talk about america bring it into our uh, our backyard here yeah, so at, like you said, as Americans, like you and I are, and as we can probably assume, ninety nine most, 9. if not all, yeah. of the of the people listening are. Uh, that that's the specific context that we need to think about these these terms and world issues in light of, because yeah. America is where we live, and as such, we're naturally going to have a certain loyalty, a certain devotion. To the nation that we live in, kind of like we talked about, same with, you know, the business that you work in or the church that you go to or the family uh, that you live in uh, within reason that th- there's nothing wrong with wanting to see that thrive. But when these events in the world happen and we start thinking about our country interacting with other countries throughout the world, how do we as Christians begin to think about what should and should not happen, how those interactions ought to go. Um, and there's two things that I think are are important kind of theological foundations uh, to think about um, such events. The first is that we, we have to remember that, that America and everything about America, our values, our beliefs, our governmental system, our way of life, our people, our interests, whatever it may be about America, is not inherently better or superior than any other nation. There may be certain things about our nation that are better than that specific thing in this one nation or that nation. Uh, But there are also things about other nations that are better than things about ours. The point is, is that America as a whole is not better, is not superior than uh, any other nation. And, and, And I think that's important to remember because go back to imperialism. It's the idea of, in essence, through force, forcing your interests, your way of life, your power, your authority upon others. That's built upon a belief that we are better than everybody else, and so we need to gain control and spread our influence as far as it can. Uh, The negative form of nationalism is the same thing. When you start placing primary emphasis on your culture, your interests, your values and beliefs, your governmental system, whatever it may be, that's saying, in essence, we are better than everybody else. 
And so our interests, our values, whatever, take precedent over everybody else. And from a biblical perspective, that is very problematic. Uh, And the text that I go to is Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, John gives us an, an image of the throne room of God, which I think is an essence and an image when we think about what's going on in the throne room of God. It's an image of peace, uh, the Old Testament word shalom, which is an image of, of, of heaven. The, the biblical idea of peace is everything being in its proper place, everything yeah. being like God created and designed it to be which is what heaven's going to be, which is what we're looking forward to when heaven comes is this ultimate image of peace, of everything being right. And when we get that image in Revelation chapter 7, this is what it says in verses 9 and 10. It says, After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, the image of the throne room of God, the image of peace, the image of, of heaven, is one that celebrates the diversity of human beings and of human nations. Heaven is not going to be a place where all of our differences and all of our diversity are just washed over and we all become the exact same person. But heaven is going to be a place where the diversity and the differences of human beings, of human nations, of human cultures are going to come together in unity, are going to come together as one, and those differences are going to be celebrated. And so we we see that that image that we're waiting for is every nation, every tribe, every people, every language standing together before the throne of God. And so our biblically, that image of heaven that we're waiting for impacts the way that we live now. In other words, there's not one people, there's not one language, there's one, there's not one nation that's superior to all others. But it's the reality that we celebrate the distinctions, the diversity, the unique things that different nations, different cultures, different people groups, different language bring to the world stage. It's very similar to the way that God created and designed the church. We've talked, yes, we've had yes, some yes. discussions about how the church is meant to operate that the church is unity within diversity is the term that I like to use. You have a diversity of people, beliefs, experiences, gifts that all come together and bring those unique gifts and experiences and personalities and beliefs. They bring all those together and use them to work in harmony with one another. That's the way the church is meant to operate. And on a bigger scale, that's how God intended for the world to operate to have this diversity that works together in unity. Does that work well now? No, uh, because of sin and the way that sin causes things like that negative view of, of nationalism, imperialism, uh, which is just, I think, fancy words for pride. 
the the sure, yeah. sin of pride causes all of these problems in our diversity. But what we're looking for in heaven is for that unity within diversity that's supposed to characterize the church to characterize the entire creation, not to get rid of our diversity, but rather to celebrate it. Um, to and enter- so, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, so any belief that places one anything as inherently superior to everything and everybody else is not only prideful, but it's also antithetical to the gospel, to the story of God, to scripture, to heaven, to the church, to, I mean, you could keep on listing things there. Yeah, it was that that big story that, you know, uh, I was going to interject the the uh from every nation the the phrase that you you read there out of revelation uh 7 9 through 10 uh all tribes all peoples all languages all languages very evocative of the promise to abraham in genesis 12 of from you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed uh this this promise of the messiah to come uh, what we see in luke and acts of the the uh, forgiveness uh, of sins and repentance in the name of Jesus for all nations, this mission being carried out, uh, that the church, as you said, we, we are we are presently seeking to be what our future reality uh, is going to be, a unity and diversity, uh, that phrase there. And so uh, that, that idea of any physical nation on earth, and we're speaking of America because that is our background. That is our that is our cultural context, and we have to think about those things. Uh, but that any nation or group or people is inherently better is is simply not the case. We're all uh, all trying to bring uh, every group uh, under under God uh, as they are unity and diversity uh, there. Uh, I think that's where we're headed next uh, here in this next part is. Uh, America and Israel, and this is where a lot of our, this is where a lot of the discussions go to. There's conflating of we're Christians, so we're like Israel in that way, but God is blessing our nation, the nation of America, and so we're like we we tend to conflate America with Christianity and Israel. Uh, why are those not the same thing, Spencer? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm, you would think just America, Israel, they're two different names. So they're obviously not the same thing. Yeah, right? there you go. Uh, <laughs> but the, you know, America's not Israel because America's not a theocracy. A theocracy is a nation that is governed directly by God. God's the leader. God's the, the, the king. God gives the rules. God gives the uh, the the law, um, which is what we see with, with Israel, right? What governed Israel? Well, Israel was governed by the the, the law of Moses. Uh, even when when Israel had a, a a king, right? God was involved in that. He chose Saul. He chose David, right? Yep. God's overseeing. That's obviously not what's happening in America or any nation right now. God's not working and leading a nation uh, in that uh way uh and so we can 
like you said, sometimes the problem is, well, we we look at things that God said to Israel and then we try to apply them to America and to America's interests and actions, which is not always wrong to do, but we have to be very careful because that's a big difference, right? Israel yeah. was God's called out, chosen, set apart people that he was directly governing. Governing America is not. So we have to be very careful in ever applying something that is said to Israel to America. Because, I mean, I, I would say maybe even the majority of time, there's not a direct connection. There's probably generally always some kind of application that we can make, but not a direct one for one. Well, the exact same thing will happen if or should happen or whatever it may be. So we have to be very careful with that. Uh, and sometimes we want to do that. And sometimes the reason we we, we do that is because of beliefs uh, that uh, America is, or at least was established as a Christian nation. Uh, this is not a podcast where we're going to debate or argue the validity of that statement one way or another. Uh, we can have debates about whether it was, whether it wasn't, to what degree it was, or what degree it wasn't. But when it comes down to that, none of it matters because we're that still doesn't make us Israel in any right. form or fashion. And so because of that, because we're not Israel, uh, our nation, our actions, our way of life or whatever are not inherently ordained by God. I think sometimes we we believe when we kind of equate the two for whatever reason, when we want to apply Old Testament passages stated to Israel to America, uh, which I think has some of uh, behind it uh, beliefs of uh, America as a, a Christian, as a godly nation. Right. Sometimes we get to the point where we say, well, because of that, our interests our way of life, whatever it may be, is God-ordained. And so it's almost like everything that we do is the way that God wants it done. And um, look at our history, which includes things like slavery. That is obviously far from the case. Uh, but that leads again into the problems that we've talked about of diversity, of imperialism, of nationalism. That's where all those problems begin to resurface once again. That pride of, well, because we are America, the things that we do is are governed by God. I do want to say, and you mentioned this before, that th this isn't just true of America. We're talking yes, about the yes. United States because that's where we live. But we're not the only country, the only group of people to talk like that. Right. Uh, and it's just as problematic for another nation as it is for us to, to do it. Uh, we just can't talk about the context of other nations because we don't live there. Uh, we're right. Americans, not whatever else. Um, so... Uh, we have it's, a responsibility uh, to get those yes. things right uh, on on our side of things before we start listing out how everybody else should get their things in order. It's 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 the whole plank in your eye, speck yes. in yes. your uh, brother's eye 
kind of a thing. And so uh, America's not Israel. And so when we start thinking about America interacting with, with other nations, America on the world stage, that's important to, to, to remember. Uh, the law of Moses, which was given by God, which was ordained by God, uh, which governed the nation of Israel, which is the only true theocracy, God-led nation to ever exist, uh, it, it was never meant to govern other people or other nations. There was never, God never intended for there to be another theocracy, another God-led government or nation other than Israel. That, that was never God's intention. It's it's interesting to note that uh, the in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, authors, prophets, whoever it may be, um, while they do call other nations to recognize and to be obedient to Yahweh, to be obedient to the one true God, they never call them to become Israel uh, or to follow the entire law as a nation. Uh, think about the Old Testament, Israel, the, the prophets. You never see them going to another nation and saying, hey, you need to become a theocracy like Israel. You need to follow the law. The Old Testament law, by its very nature, was exclusive. It, it, it separated Israel from other nations. It separated one nation from all other. It wasn't inherently inclusive, even though the ultimate goal of the law, the ultimate vision of the law was all nations, all people, but not for all nations, all people to become their own Israel, if that makes sense. That's a whole other episode. I think it's easier to think about that in terms of the New Testament. Yes. Um, when you think of the New Testament authors writing in the context of, of Rome, we do see imperial language. We do see language directed at Rome, the desire for Rome uh, to uh, recognize the existence of God, so on and so forth. But you never see Paul, for example, saying, okay, Rome, you need to become like Israel. You need to become a theocracy. You, you need to. Right. You, you don't see any of that. What they do is they try to change the hearts and the minds of, of people, which changes the the world. But you never see a call for for Rome to become like like Israel, because that it's not God's intention, uh, and that's important for a lot of reasons, as we've talked about to remember that that's wasn't God's intention in the Old Testament or the New Testament it's not God's intention now and so America is not Israel so we don't need to make it Israel yeah God has always in God, God has always intended for people to become his people in the Old Testament that that narrative takes place in the context of a physical nation of Israel drawing people to them, not to become Israelites, but to become God's people. Um, and then in our New Testament uh, time, it's God wants people to become his Christians, not Americans. And we don't make Christians through the American process. We make Christians through uh, devotion and belief in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, but it's it can be very easy, as you said, to... Uh, when we're, it can be very easy to make 
what America is doing, what God wants to be done. America does some things that God's happy with. America does and has done things that God is not happy with whatsoever. And that is true of every nation around. Uh, and it's true and of I every think, nation before and every nation after us. And I think one way that you see that, or, or at least one, one, one way that I've seen that just kind of stick out to me the most is, is when you look at a temptation that can sometimes happen when American missionaries go to another country and they establish a church, uh, sometimes what happens is you end up, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're going to some country in, in Africa, right? And yeah. you end up making American Christians in Africa, not African Christians. Yeah. Uh, you, you establish a way of being the church and of doing church that reflects the culture of America, not the child church of whatever country it is that you're in in Africa. I I, I watched a sermon the other uh it's it's been a little while and I don't remember what what point that he was making, but he showed some videos of some time that he spent in uh Africa with this church. And what took him back was he was with them on like Friday and Saturday and they were very up beat, excited, singing, you know, having a great, a great and joyous time, everyone. Then he went to church on, on Sunday morning and he showed us a video of him with them Friday and Saturday and then a video of them on Sunday and they just looked depressed. Mm. There was no excitement. There was no moving. There was no nothing. I mean, it, it was just the most depressing sight you've ever seen. And he asked them why. And the reason was because when American missionaries had come over and established the church, they said, well, you've got to worship by singing these American Christian hymns, which nobody could get behind right. because it didn't connect to them at all. And so he was like, OK, well, we're going to change this. Sing your African Christian hymns. And the difference in worship was just incredible. I mean, it, it wasn't it didn't become like a chore or an unfortunate thing that they just kind of had to get through. Sure. Anymore. Uh, that's kind of the, the diversity thing of, you know, one, that there's multiple ways to do church. There's a lot of cultural things that are connected with the way that we do church. And the, the songs we sing is just one example. Um, I don't know if this was you or if it was somebody else, but somebody had talked about um, the nativity scene being portrayed in other cultures. And how how big the party was when, and, and I don't mean like celebration, I mean the, the group. How big was the group after the baby comes and whatever? And different cultures have like, well, you've got you know this many people there helping out and whatever, because that's their cultural experience. When you have a child, mm -hmm. this is how things work. And so the nativity scene keeps its base elements, but then a lot of the details that are left unspecified change within the culture because different cultures view things in different ways and practice things in different ways. And it's important that the thing that we get across is the message of Christ and not anything more than that. Uh, we're kind of shifting a little bit here. 
uh, jumping now into going from nations being what the, what nations are and how nations try to go about uh, affecting the world into what happens when uh, the imperialism and the nationalism you said you know there's it's okay within reason but when it gets to a more extreme position of we are inherently better or our values or beliefs are inherently better uh, then you start to tip over into well let's go to war and and spread that uh, forcefully to everywhere that is around us. Uh, and when you talk about war, then you have to talk about human life and its value and humans living in other nations and how that affects them. That's where all of this stuff comes together. Uh, where do you want to start with on, on war and human life? Well, I, I think we have to start by going back to the beginning, going back to creation and the creation of, of human life. And this is something that in multiple other contexts in previous episodes we've talked about before, about what, what it means for human beings to be created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, we're told that all human beings have been created in the image of God. And like I said, we, we've talked about before that that means that all human beings are royal representatives of God. And so human beings are not only meant to reflect God back into the creation, to do the work of God in creation, but that the way that you treat a human being is also the way that you're treating God. And so the imagery of being a royal representative of God is God is the the king who has sent out human beings as those who represent him. So the way it it would work is a, is a king may send out a representative for multiple reasons, to go and do something on his behalf, maybe to go and speak to another nation, to another king on his behalf. And when a king does that, first off, he's giving certain of his rights, of his abilities to that representative. The, the representative now has the right to do certain things as if he was the the king, and that's dependent on whatever it is that the king sent the representative out to do. But then also, because that representative is now standing in place of the king, has certain rights that the king has given to him, the way that you treat that representative is the way that you're treating the king. So a king sends a representative to another king to discuss a treaty, let's say, on behalf of the king. Well, you insult the representative, you kill the representative, you beat the representative, whatever you do, that's a direct action to the king himself because that representative is meant to be seen as the king because he's standing in place of the king. And that's what human beings are in relation to God. We God has given us a job to go out and do in the world, to reflect God back into the world. We stand in the place of God in the world as image bearers of God. That's the whole idea that's being given there in Genesis chapter 1. And so because of that, uh, that means that all human life is of equal value. If all human beings are created in the image of God, then all human beings are not only valuable, but all human beings are of equal value and so the way that you treat any human being is the way that you are treating God. And that's important for us to, to remember. And so that means there isn't one human life that's more valuable than another 
human's life. A, a criminal's life is of no less value than Mother Teresa's life. They're both equal image bearers of God. Now, the way that a person might contribute or harm society may be different. And so we can talk about the benefits and the harms of people's actions. Sure. But as image bearers, that's not where a person's value is found. A person's value is not found in what they contribute or don't contribute to society, but a person's value is found in their image-bearing ability, right? A, a child is no less valuable because they can't contribute anything to society yet than a grown adult who contributes a lot to society. Right. Both of their lives are of equal value. A, someone with a disability who can't uh, contribute to society in the same way as someone else is of no less value. Like I said, a, a criminal who we would say has done or is doing things that are harmful to society doesn't make that person any less valuable than someone else because our value is found in who we are as image bearers of God, as these royal representatives of God. And so that then means that we should protect all human life at all costs and in all areas of life because of that value. And so there's a couple of things that I want to highlight there in what I just said. All human life, because of all human life is of equal value. So we should protect all human life, uh, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done from the the unborn all the way uh, to the nursing home and, and everything in between. That's all human life. At all costs. In other words, we should do whatever we can and whatever it takes to protect all human life. And that's in all areas of life. There's not, you can't separate this circumstance or that circumstance or that area or that person and say, okay, but not here. Human life is not as important in this situation as it is in this other situation. It's not the way that it works. If we believe that all human beings are created in the image of God, so all human beings have the same val value as royal representatives of God, then we protect all life at all costs and in all areas of life. And so... Let's continue to extend the implications of this. That then means that as creator of human beings, as the one who created human beings in his image, only God has the right to take human life. That's not a right that we as human beings have. That's reserved only for God as the creator of human beings. That's not a right that we have. And again, that's connected even back to remembering the way that we're treating other people is the way that we're treating God. Now, I say that, and some of you may be thinking of uh, examples that are maybe contrary to that throughout Scripture. Uh, something that we're not going to delve into uh, in this episode, we'll save, we'll come back to uh, this topic at, at some point down the line, I'm sure. 
But one thing that you see throughout Scripture is that at times, God gives this right to his royal representatives within specific and outlined circumstances. So, only God as creator has the right to take human life. But at times in Scripture, we see God give this right to his royal representatives. Remember back what it means to be a representative of the king. The king will give some of his rights, some of his power to that representative to carry out whatever job he's given to them. Sometimes we see God do that in regards to human life, giving that over to human beings. But it's always within specific and outlined circumstances. Uh, So just real quickly... Uh, Some examples, Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7, after the flood, God speaks to Noah about if any human being or even any animal takes the life of another human being, that their life will be taken from them Hmm. by a human being. And so you have their uh, uh, revenge, consequence, uh, punishment for taking human life. What's interesting there in Genesis 9 is it is we're connected back to being created in the image of God. Yep. That is why God uh, says that. He says in verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed, because in his own image God made humankind. Because God created human beings and hum, uh, human beings after his image— God says that's why there's so much value on human life, and there's such a harsh consequence for you taking human life. Now, there's a lot of implications. How does that work? How's that carried out? That's for another episode. Uh, But that's just an example that we see. Uh, We see it in the law of Moses, right? There's certain laws, death penalty for Israel in certain circumstances. If, If this happens and there's so many witnesses and so on and so forth, this is what you do. But again, that's laid out by God. God has that right. He sets out, okay, I'm giving this to you, but within this circumstance in the law of Moses. You see it in Old Testament genocide when God has Israel go and wipe out an entire people group. Uh, God, the only one that has the right to do that, he does it. He carries it out through his royal representatives, through the people of Israel. Again, there's a lot more that... uh, can be said and needs to be said about this, and, and will uh, but be that's said. for other episodes. Yep. Um, right, and we will be. We will at some point come back to this topic. But for now, it suffices just to remind us that uh, sometimes God carries out this right that is reserved only through Him, through His like emissaries, through His royal representatives yeah. in human beings. Yeah. And so when we take all that together. And we think of the inherent value of human life, when we think of the way that we treat other human beings is how we're treating God, when we think about only God hold having the right to take human life because he created human beings, but yet we see some examples throughout scripture where God gives that to human beings in certain circumstances, um, in certain situations, and how do we fit that in, which we're not going to delve into too much, uh, in this episode, but that's important for us to be thinking about, and we need to bring all of that together when we start to think about when war, when uh, crisis, when whatever it may be, builds up on the world stage. We begin to have questions about refugees, 
questions about war, even questions about self-defense. Within criminal system and stuff like that, we have questions about the death penalty. All these things begin to come up. And as we think about these issues, we need to think about them within this theological context of the sanctity of human life, of human beings created in the image of God. And so while, yes, there's nuance with some of these things, yes, different circum- we, we think about different circumstances in different ways, uh, different people have, have different views, different ways of working things out. We're not always going to agree, but whatever, we've got to come back to the same premise, that human beings are created in the image of God. They have inherent value. The way you treat another human being is the way that you're treating God, and that God's the one that holds the the right over human life, not us as human beings. That's where we've got to start yep. when we start thinking about these other issues, war, refugees, whatever it may be. We start with human beings created in the image of God, and then we can move on and discuss the application of that in the specific circumstances that we may from time to time find ourselves in. Um, all of that being true, the rest of the world doesn't necessarily abide by that. I mean, part of what drove us to having this particular episode is what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and the rest of the world talking about those things and uh, even rumors of other nations in the world and thinking about war and what are they going to do and all of this sort of stuff. Uh, so how do we how do we deal with the reality of a world that's that that disregards these things that sees human life uh maybe at least to some degree as uh, uh necessary casualties in accomplishing the greater good of you know, moving a nation's ideals forward. How, how do Christians deal with that? Yeah, so we live in a broken world, right? And so I, I think when we think about the sanctity of human life and we kind of go back to, well, because of that, we need to protect all human life at all costs and in all areas of life. I think everyone would agree, at least I think everyone should agree, that optimally— That means that in a perfect world, human life is never taken for any reason, right? We never go to war. We never have to uh, defend ourselves. There's no casualties. There's no nothing, right? That's optimal life. I think no matter where you stand on any of these issues, I I hope that's something that we can all agree on, that that's what we want. The problem is that the world doesn't always work that way. What what happens when some of these other problems, uh, when other nations do things, when, when wars break out, at, when that happens, when a broken world acts like a broken world, what do we do? And we've talked about this before with the story of Tamar and the Holocaust, that what those two things illustrated for us is that in a broken world, sometimes we're forced to make decisions not between good and bad or good and evil, but sometimes we're forced to make a decision between bad and bad or bad and worse. Yeah. The example we gave with the Holocaust is a mother having to choose which one of her, ch- of her children 
is killed and which one lives. Because you're probably left with the option of you choose one kid or the other or you don't choose and everybody dies. None of those things are a good choice. It's bad, bad, bad. But yet you're forced to make a choice. How do we ethically think about that? Uh, the, the story of Tamar, Tamar was put in a similar no-win situation. It was either allow herself to to die, to be abused, to not be taken care of, uh, or as she dresses up like a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law to actually fulfill the law that God had given that was supposed to have happened in the first place to protect her and her family and allow her to continue to survive. Uh She's left with there's no good choice. There's no right choice. And sometimes that's where we find ourselves uh, in a broken world. Um, And so just some examples as it relates to kind of what we've been talking about, imperialism, nationalism, and and human life. Uh, An example would be uh, maybe you're stuck in a situation where, okay, do we go to war, which guarantees tragedies? losing the life of of soldiers, losing the life of of innocent civilians. Or maybe the other option is we allow innocent people to die. Uh, There's some leader, there's some country that is killing innocent people. I think about the Holocaust again. What do we do? Do we allow that to happen? Or maybe the only option to keep that from happening is to do something like war where people die anyways. I think most of us could probably agree neither one of those options is good because people are losing their life and we hold yeah. human life in such a high value. Um, I, I think of something like like, like self-defense, which in America, uh, particularly in the, the South where we are, Texas, Oklahoma, big discussions. Uh, let's say you're in a restaurant. Uh, someone walks in some kind of weapon to take the life of the people in the restaurant. Uh, do you... Use self-defense and take their life or allow them to take the life of everyone in the restaurant. Uh, I don't think either one of those is a good choice. I think that's a choice between bad and bad because either way, human life is taken, which is not what we want, right? You protect all human life at all costs in all areas of life. What do you do when you're presented in situations like that where there's it's a lose-lose scenario? Well, Going back to the story of Tamar, if you haven't listened to that episode, I would encourage you to. The, the kind of conclusion that, that I come to is, is first off, when we're forced to make those decisions, I think the, the ethical judgment comes not on us for making the decision, but on the systems, the people, the brokenness of our world that put us in that situation, first off. But... I want to say, again, there's a lot of nuance in these questions. Different situations are different. There's a lot of different ways to think about these two issues. So I'm I'm not convinced necessarily that there's one broad answer to questions such as these that we can give that works in all times and all places. And people yeah. are going to agree. I've I've got friends that are are pacifists that would say, well, war is is never the option, and I've got friends that think a little bit differently about that. Uh, but what I want to encourage us to do is not to try to give maybe some overarching solution that solves all of these no win solutions for us, 
But to make sure that we're thinking about these issues theologically, going back to understanding the unity within diversity principles, to understanding the sanctity of human life, and to start there as we begin to deal with the specific situations that present ourselves themselves to us while realizing that there's not always a right or good or perfect solution. Sometimes it's bad and bad, and we just have to figure out in that, what, what's, what are we to do? But we do that by thinking theologically. Um, but again, it's important to realize that it's not always a decision between good and bad. Sometimes it is. A lot of the times it is, but not always. Yeah. Because the world is broken. And so what do we do? It's it's not always easy. Uh, but stand, I always say stand on the side of of human life um, real quickly. And then we'll we'll conclude here because we're out of time. But uh, I'm I can't remember their names. Uh, but the, the the Old Testament story where uh, the uh, the guy promises to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house and it's his daughter uh, Jephthah. Yes. Yeah. So what do you do there? You, you you've made an oath to God, which you shouldn't break. Right. But the law forbids human sacrifice. Right. Um, at the same time, and that's again a lose lose situation. But when you read that story, at least to me, it's obvious that the right solution is not to sacrifice the daughter because you always stand on the side of human life. If all else fails, stand for life, that's always going to be the right decision. And so that's where we have to start. The problem is... Uh, what happens when we have two or more decisions, but life is lost no matter what we choose? That's where we start to get into yeah. to problems. We always stand on the side for life. We always try to protect life, uh, all human life at all costs in all areas. But again, sometimes a broken world acts like a broken world, and it's not that simple. And in those situations, what do we do? And, and that's where I think in those moments we can have those conversations, but we can only rightfully have them as Christians with these foundations in place first so that we can build off of them. Agreed. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this. Uh, we'll, we will talk about these things more in some other episodes. We've kind of uh, spoiled that a bit. We don't want to do a, a series on war and death and uh, human life being taken in various ways, and what do we do? Um, at least not in a row. <laughs> it makes for a rather bleak series of of episodes. So um, that, that that's not very that's not thinking very highly of human no. life. T- to uh, that you would, I feel like we'd all be in a pretty dark place after two months of yes, yes, that. Uh, but we will talk about those things. Uh, but we want to end this with a couple thoughts. Uh, one, Spencer will talk about the first here, and the second uh, is a. Uh, I'll, I'll read a quote and then kind of close us out um, with that. Just more generally, uh, broadly, what can we do uh, when it comes to our our main subject of theology on the world stage? Uh, what what can we as those of 
uh, Christ's nation, the, the Christian nation, his church, his body? What can we do? Uh, what's our what's our first thing, Spencer? Well, I to some this might sound like a, a cop out. What what do we do? But I think that the first thing we do is is pray. Yep, I, I think that's the place that we start uh, because we believe in the power of prayer, because we believe in the power of God, and because we recognize that a lot of the times when these world events happen, that the the, the solution, the way we need to respond. Is not always easy. Is not always obvious. We need to invite God. We need to invite God's Spirit into whatever it is that's going on. And so, I think that's yes. the place that we start. I don't think that's the the place that we end. At some point, you've got to do something, and maybe something is just speaking. Maybe it's not any more than that. But at some point, you have to do something, and, and that's true for any problem. The church can see a problem in the world, and they start by praying. But at some point, the church has to mobilize and do something. Yes, God, as Paul talks about, works through our broken earthen vessels for His glory. Uh, at some point, we have to get up and do something. Uh, but to figure out what that something is, you start in prayer. Uh, you invite the the Spirit to enter in as we discern what that something is where do we go from from here and so i i think that's so important i think that's where we start we start in prayer and then we can move on from there yeah prayer is uh we might say prayer is the action but it isn't the only action um asking god to come in and provide wisdom inviting him explicitly into the narrative uh, to directly uh, affect the brokenness and start to bring it together is the thing that we ought to be doing and beginning with, but not the only thing. Because once you invite God in, uh, God has expectations for his church. And that's and that's what the second part is. And again, this is general. Um, it's from, it's from uh, N.T. Wright's book, uh, Evil and the Justice of God. And I thought that this would be good as a summing up uh, for our discussion today, but also as a bit of a uh, a precursor for where we are headed uh, here for our, our next series. Here's what it says. This theme, so frequent in the New Testament and so widely ignored in Christian theology, is part of the solution to the problem. It isn't that the cross has won the victory, so there's nothing more to be done. Rather, the cross has won the victory as a result of which there are now redeemed human beings getting ready to act as God's wise agents, his stewards, constantly worshiping their creator, and constantly, as a result, being equipped to reflect his image into his creation, to bring his wise and healing order to the world, putting the world to rights, under his just and gentle rule. A true biblical ecclesiology should focus not so much on the fact that the church is the community of the saved, but that the church is the community of those who, being redeemed through the cross, are now to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and to reign on the earth. Our fear of triumphalism on the one hand, and on the other hand our flattening out of our final destiny into talk of mere, merely of going to heaven, have combined to rob us of this central biblical theme. But until we put back where it belongs, we won't see how the New Testament ultimately offers a solution to the problem of evil. First half of that quote uh, has to do with us being God's agents, image bearers, as we've discussed. That that theme is true from many scholars you would read. 
that's the sentiment of, of bearing that image now out into the world. Uh, inviting God, God in to the broken narrative means we're carrying God through the broken narrative. Uh, but the second part of that has to do with our understanding of where we're going, what, what the death of Jesus on the cross means, uh, and what that is, uh, maybe we'll say setting in motion, uh, what that is solving, what problem, what big problem that is trying to solve, uh, and our place in all of that. And that's what we want to focus on as we go through the next uh, set of, of lessons here. Uh, you might have heard, you know, new new heavens, new earth uh, theology, new creation, new creation theology, and all of that. That's going to be a that's a our longest series probably <laughs> is what this is going to be, uh, I imagine. But we want to spend time with it and think about it because it really does help to answer questions like this: theology on the world stage, or various problems of life and war and troubles that we experience through, throughout our life. That's what we're going to be exploring with uh, New Heavens, New Earth theology stuff, uh, looking at the various times it is talked about throughout Scripture and specific authors uh, within Scripture, their commentaries on that particular subject, and maybe Spencer and I will even disagree with each other a little bit, so that might be fun <laughs> as we get into all that. It will be fun. Um, if you want to comment along on this episode, there are lots of ways you can do that on Facebook. You can do it on SoundCloud if you're there. You can comment in the various places where you get your podcasts. You can also message us directly, strongchurchministries at gmail.com. Get a hold of us on Facebook personally. Get a hold of Spencer on Twitter. He loves the follow. Uh, and hopefully... There will be no sickness, no bad weather, but we do live in a broken world. Who knows? But hopefully there's none of that, and we'll see you in a couple weeks uh, with our next episode.